All right, so you guys getting full yet? <laughs> and, and that's both, I think, the food down the hall and what you're getting in here. And I don't know about the logic of that, feeding you and feeding you and feeding you in between, which tends to get us drowsy, right? And then you come back in and try to stay awake for the lectures as it gets later into the evening. Uh, but hopefully, uh, and this is, this is where it starts actually to get real practical. You've heard practicality uh, all along, starting from uh, Randy Patton's first message. But those were broad overviews, just sort of like almost a 35,000-foot view of what makes biblical counseling unique, what makes it biblical, what makes it different from the, what the world has to offer. And that covers a lot of categories, shows you in a lot of different ways, a lot of quotes, a lot of scriptures, a lot of categories, uh, how it is distinct, how it's different, how there's hope. Uh, for life change, how there's hope for salvation, which is our greatest need. And then Pastor Terry going through all ten categories of systematic theology in one hour. And of course he touched on the gospel here and there. Uh, and that is our topic for this hour. So this is where we start to zoom in. And you'll see, especially tomorrow, we get really into mechanics of things, practical how-tos on things like giving homework and giving instruction in your sessions. Uh, this is this is a little bit bigger picture than that. This is what is the center. You probably noticed on uh, one of Randy Patton's slides, I think he was giving um, commitments and then the answers that they lead us to. The commitment to the gospel leads us to our focus. And so that is what we are focusing on in this hour, the gospel and biblical counseling. Uh, and you'll see, starting here, and this is the major component of what we say is like the practical uh, outworking or the practice of biblical counseling is we start with the gospel and we keep coming back to the gospel. So that's what we're going to talk about in this hour. Uh, before we do get started with that, uh, I want to go ahead and, and uh, lead us in a word of prayer. So if you would bow with me. Father, as we have already reflected on uh, this evening, uh, we are sinners in need of your help. Um, Father, we confess our weakness. Father, we rejoice to remember that it is in our weakness that your power is made perfect. And Father, that as we've already heard this evening, your truth, your word, the knowledge of Christ is sufficient for every issue, every matter pertaining to life and godliness. And Father, it is the knowledge of Jesus, it says there in that text, uh, by which we have all sufficiency for everything pertaining to life and godliness. And at its essence, that is the gospel. Father, we thank you and we praise you, Lord Jesus, for your life and your death and your resurrection. Father, you for your work on our behalf and for your reign even now as you always live to make intercession for us. Father, we need that. We need that in this hour <clears throat> as we seek uh, to get our heads around a topic that maybe isn't as big as all ten categories of systematic theology, but certainly is beyond us. And so we ask, Father, that you would help us, that you would send your spirit to give us conviction, to give us guidance, to give us understanding, to give us wisdom. Father, to submit ourselves to the truth of the gospel. Father, to learn uh, in practical ways its outworking. Uh, first in our own hearts and our own lives, and Father, in ways that are going to enable us to be able to minister the gospel, uh, to address the issues of life uh, with those that you bring our way to minister to. We pray all of this in your Son's name and for his glory. Amen. Amen. 
So uh, I want to demonstrate, starting from the scriptures, which is, of course, where we should start with this, uh, the fact that the gospel is the focus. The gospel is the center, and this is how we start in our approach to biblical counseling. So if you would, open with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. And I'm going to read a list starting in verse 29. So we're just going to jump in and I'm going to read this list to you. And I'm going to give you a heads up now that I'm going to ask you when I'm done reading. I'm going to ask you a question about what we've just heard, what we've just read. Verse 29, Romans 1. Having been filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, Deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, violent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the righteous requirement of God and those who practice such things, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, They not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. What does that list represent? Wickedness, what was that? Life's problems. That's exactly right. The issues of life that we all deal with, and we might also call those counseling problems. This is what we deal with. And you come in to the counseling room, and and you guys may know this from having gone into the counseling room, or had someone just come to you and want to meet you at Starbucks or sit down in your kitchen table and start just unloading on you the issues of their lives. And, of course, some of these are more intense than others. Some of them are more general. But these are the issues, the problems of life, and they're the problems of the counseling room. So let's ask another question. Why do these problems exist? Sin, that's the simple answer. We back up and we get a little bit more detailed answer. And I know we just sort of jumped into verse 29 and following there. We'll go back a little bit in the context now, starting in verse 20. This explains why these counseling problems are in the world. Verse 20. For since the creation of the world... His, that is God's, invisible attributes, both His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So that's everyone in the world is without excuse because God has put on display in the world the evidence of His existence. You can't look at a sunrise, you can't look at a person, you can't look at the design of the world and honestly, with with an honest heart or a pure heart, which each of us lacks to begin with, say that there is no God. It's suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, which is what he goes on to say. Verse 21, For even though they knew God, it was, it was evident to them that he existed. They did not glorify him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the likeness of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. That's those desires that lead you to the things that you do. We do what we do. Why? 
because we want what we want. So God gave them over to these desires, so they, in turn, do all those things in the list that we read to begin with. God gave them over, verse 24, in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So that is why that list of counseling problems is in the world. What it comes down to, Paul is saying, is a worship disorder. We were made in such a way, we were made to be worshipers, and the creation, everything God has made, including us, testifies to the fact that he is God and the one to be worshipped. What do we do in our natural state? We see that and we turn away. And as Pastor Terry was talking about Tozer's quote, the most important thing about you is what comes to your mind when you think about God. I was just reflecting on the fact that this makes sense. There's there's a logic to this. Why would people who are under God's wrath look to other things to tell themselves uh, that God doesn't exist? Because they are rightly perceiving the way he sees them when he looks at them. Right? He's angry with the wicked every day. They need something to tell them he can have a different disposition towards them. And that's where we're going. So we start by seeing what are the, the list in, in verse 29. Those are the issues of life, the problems of life, the problems that come to the counseling room. Why are those problems there? The problems are there because we've exchanged, that's what sinners do, we exchange, we have a worship disorder. We exchange the worship of the God who has made himself evident. He's made himself known through the evidence that there is in the whole world. We've exchanged that and said, I'm going to look over here and worship this. I'm going to put myself on the throne. I'm going to worship the pleasure I can get from this or that or the next thing. I'm going to pretend, I'm going to suppress that truth and pretend that the one who's angry with me, angry with my sin doesn't exist, and I'm going to create for myself these gods over here to make myself content, to satisfy my lusts. Of course, do those things ever work out that way? Ultimately, no. But there can be enough of them. It keeps that going for some time. So, what is the solution? And you'll see, interesting, I'm, I'm going backwards here. Going back now to verse 16. Paul says, so he gives the solution up front. For I am not ashamed of what? The gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous shall live by faith. And it's not my intent to fully unpack Romans 1. It would take longer than we have (laughs) left in this hour. Uh, But I will just point out, that's the verse. That was key to to Luther's understanding that kind of launched the Reformation. You know why? Probably not something you could say real quickly. It's the relationship between righteousness and God in that text. What is the righteousness of God? What's the grammatical construction there? It is the righteousness that comes from God as a gift to those who believe in him. So this changes the mindset of the sinner 
from one that says, I need to pretend that God doesn't exist if I'm going to have any hope of a happy life because he's angry with me. And Romans 1 is saying, yes, that can be perceived. The wrath of God against sin can be perceived from what is known about him, from the way the world works. How can we know, how can we have that disposition changed so that we can think the right kind of thoughts about God that will bring us to him? To realize what Luther did in launching the Reformation, that the gospel is about the righteousness that comes from God as a gift through faith to those who believe in him. So that's just an initial demonstration of what it is that brings our counselees to the counseling room, which is the same thing that brings a husband and wife together at the at the table after the kids go to bed to say, what was that? And hopefully, you know, that does happen. There is some communication when there's been a blow up in the home, when the kids have been fighting nonstop or when mom and dad have been fighting nonstop. What are those issues? They're these issues. Why do they exist? Worship disorder. What's the solution? The gospel. So we're going to look at this broadly in two parts. Uh, number one, Roman numeral number one, the gospel and biblical counseling. And then secondly, someone have an eye on that? What's Roman numeral two? The gospel and the practice, gospel and practice in biblical counseling. That's right. You'll have to forgive me. I'm pinch hitting for Keith Palmer. You see his name on the bottom of your notes there. Uh, so those are his notes. Um, and he graciously did give me plenty of heads up for this. So <laughs> it is on me. But uh, these are his notes and his, his uh, slideshow, which I'll point out when we get to one of his cases that he uses in here. But it's all very helpful, very practical, uh, as I said. Okay, so starting off, Roman numeral number one, the gospel and biblical counseling. And the first thing to see here is two things, that the gospel is both the heart and the hub of biblical counseling. It's both the heart and the hub of biblical counseling. And you'll see as we go here, heart kind of corresponds with conversion, and hub kind of corresponds with sanctification. Uh, and you guys will get a whole lecture later on progressive sanctification uh, so that understanding, Lord willing, will be clarified for you even as we go through uh, the weekend. As a matter of fact, I'm not sure if that one, I think that one is this weekend. Uh, so you'll get a fuller understanding of that and see how those relate to each other. Conversion and then sanctification. So the gospel is both the heart and the hub of biblical counseling. First, the heart. The heart. You cannot truly counsel uh, or disciple and that's what counseling is. I don't think that's been talked about too much so far. You'll hear more of that probably this weekend and the following weekends. Uh, here at Calvary Bible Church, and I, I guess I failed to introduce myself. Those of you who don't know me, I am one of the pastors here at Calvary, serving alongside Pastor Randy, who uh, prayed and, and made the announcements to begin with. And we sort of talk about three, and this is this is not, you know, inspired truth in the Bible, but for practical purposes, we find it useful to sort of categorize discipleship into three categories. And, and I think Randy Patton did mention this, that preaching is general discipleship. So our, our first category of discipleship is informal. It's what happens generally in preaching and teaching. It's what happens in small group. It's what happens in men's and women's Bible studies. Uh, it's what happens out here by the playground. That's like maybe one of the number one spots actually for uh, discipleship because people after the service congregate out there. Uh, even in the summer, there are some shade trees. So as long as it's not 110, it's not too bad. 
uh, and people just talk about the issues of life. And one of the things we do here, um, Pastor Dan Kirk got us in this habit, is saying maybe at least twice a month, right at the end, just before the benediction, you know, I'm gonna, just before I give the benediction, I want to remind you, as we often do, that we don't want you to leave right away. We want you to stay, talk with each other, ask each other questions like, what are you expecting this week that's going to be hard? Or what are you expecting this week that you're excited about? And then take time to pray with them right there. That's informal discipleship, that first category. Second category of discipleship is formal discipleship. And again, this is just our categories that we use. That's And we facilitate this sometimes through the office. We'll keep a list of people who want to disciple, people who want to be discipled, and match them up as there's opportunity. It's also something that'll just happen spontaneously. Uh, this happened when my wife and I were first here uh, 12 years ago, I think it was. Uh, one of the women turned around one Sunday to my wife and said, you know, I've, I've been thinking I might enjoy getting together so I could disciple you. And my wife said yes and then came home and asked me what that meant. <laughs> uh, and that was really sweet, actually. That, that uh, woman, Jen Cup, ended up being a missionary in Uganda and they kept up their friendship, and now the cups are back, and so that's as sweet as it ever ever was. My wife and Jen get together still quite a bit. Uh, but that's always been, well, formal, because they were actually meeting, but that was a more spontaneous thing, because Jen just asked Kelly if she wanted to do it. And that usually will say, you know, it's up to, to the pair to do what they want. They may just go through kind of like a partner's resource, Mike Faberez, uh gives ten categories of life just to work through how to apply those scriptures and those the scriptures in those ten categories. Very general, usually. Our third category of discipleship moves towards the most formal, which is counseling, and that's typically the most intensive. It's addressing an issue of life that's become a lot of times often consuming for the person who's coming to ask for help. They're so caught up in whatever the issue is or the issues are that they're having a hard time seeing even the forest for the trees. They can't see the end from the beginning at all. And they're coming and saying, I'm, I'm, I'm in a pretty, usually in a pretty desperate situation. Um, not always. Sometimes it's something that's been ongoing. They've just had a hard time, uh, kicking a habit or, uh, reconciling a relationship or whatever it is in a given situation. They're saying, I need the scriptures to be brought to bear in a more pointed way by someone who has practiced doing that. And here, of course, we say we rely on our certified counselors, ACBC certified counselors for that. So all that as explanation of the fact that counseling is discipleship and you can't disciple someone who's not a disciple. And you heard earlier the definition of a disciple is what? Anyone remember? A learner, a lifelong follower of Christ who's learning to obey all that Christ has commanded. You can't disciple someone, which means you can't counsel someone who's not a disciple, who's not a believer. So uh, the question could come up, okay, someone comes and we learn they're not a believer. Do we say, go away and come back when you're a believer? No, we don't. And, and this I got from, and this was... This is good. It was hammered into me by John Street, who was my professor for biblical counseling and seminary. All 
counseling is evangelism until that person comes to Christ. I remember him saying it like a hundred times. All counseling is evangelism or pre-counseling, you could call it, until that person comes to Christ. And we'll get into more detail of what that looks like. Uh, and so we'll unfold this further into various components uh, with the small Roman numerals here first. Uh, so this is why you can't counsel an unbeliever. What are they lacking? And they're lacking specific elements of what a believer has by faith when they come to Christ that enables and empowers change. So that's really what this list is all about. First, an unbeliever does not possess the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 9, however, if you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. So the Holy Spirit, and, and I like the way Pastor Dan has always said it, when the Holy Spirit comes into a man, one of them is going to change. <laughs> and the Holy Spirit is immutable. So it is the man who is going to change. The Holy Spirit is the agent of change for the believer. An unbeliever does not possess the Holy Spirit, so you're not going to accomplish what discipleship, what counseling is trying to accomplish in transformation in an unbeliever, first off, because they don't possess the Holy Spirit. Secondly, an unbeliever does not have a new heart. And God tells Israel over and over again, especially in the early chapters of Deuteronomy, you still do not have a heart. Because Israel had agreed corporately to obey everything God was saying, and how had that gone? It wasn't going well. You still do not have a heart. You still do not have a heart. And this is biblically, theologically, it's interesting. There was always a remnant that had the heart. So there were always a remnant in Israel. You know, How can the psalmist speaks so lovingly of the law of God, and, and how can David, of course he's a sinner, we see that, but how can David be so godly? And, and so many others in the Old Testament. The reality is, they individually and as a remnant had the heart, it was the people. The people of Israel was to be the priesthood to the nations to mediate blessing, and if they didn't, they were going to mediate what? Curse. And what did they end up mediating? They ended up mediating overall curse. And so it was promised, the new covenant, I will give you corporately the heart. But then the later, later, later books in the prophets, that's not enough. It's not enough to make the Messiah a savior for Judah and Israel only. I'm going to make him a light to the nations, the Gentiles, the world. Yes. So who is the first people with a heart? The church. The church is the first people with the heart, and every believer, and this is the case going all the way back to Adam and Eve, every believer has a new heart. Every believer has a new heart. The whole church is the first people to have a new heart, and then in the end, Israel will have the heart in every nation. Isaiah 19 says, Assyria my people, and Egypt the work of my hands, and Israel will be a blessing in the midst of them, my inheritance. So yeah, all of God's people have the heart. If you're an unbeliever, you don't have the heart, which means you're going to be like unbelieving Israel, generally, on the plains of Moab. You still do not have the heart to follow me and obey all my commandments, which means change isn't going to happen. Okay, thirdly, an unbeliever remains God's enemy, right? And this is so contrary to cultural Christianity and the way we think about things, and perhaps especially here in Texas. I'm not from Texas, so I maybe have to be careful. But as long as I own a Bible and I'm an American and I was born in Texas, I must be okay with God, right? 
<laughs> and maybe it's becoming less like that. I mean, we're, you know, we're behind the rest of the country, but maybe not as far behind as we might think. But in any case, this is not a common way of thinking about things, that we're born enemies of God. And that is the case. For an unbeliever, the change that we're after in counseling is going to be impossible because they are God's enemy. And the change that we're after is a blessing. And although God does make the rain to fall and the sun to shine on the elect and the non-elect, and there is common grace, the change that we're after is the true change that pleases God from the heart. And again, because they don't possess the new heart, that is not going to happen. Fourth, an unbeliever lacks God's power for change. Uh, And we'll see this again, I think, when we get to union with Christ a little bit later on. Uh, If we've been... Uh, put to death with Christ in a death like his, if we're identifying with him, if we're united with him in his death, we've also been raised with him to walk in newness of life by the power of the resurrection. And that's completely lacking, completely lacking for an unbeliever. So the unbeliever lacks God's power for change. The list continues. Number five, an unbeliever lacks the right motivation and desire to change. We heard this read at least once already tonight. How many seek for God? None. And and that all the detail Paul gives there, it's like Pastor Terry said, it seems to me you might be saying, Paul, that men are totally depraved. Yes, that's what he's saying. They lack the right, the motivation and the desire to change. If we do what we do because we want what we want, we're going to want the wrong things. Uh, and I, there, was a, there was a counselor here for a long time who would say, what I need, and she would apply this to herself, my wanter is broken. <laughs> I need a new wanter. And that doesn't happen uh, unless you become a believer. Even then it's imperfect. Uh, six, an unbeliever cannot truly understand the truth. First Corinthians 2, these things are spiritually discerned. They're foolishness to an unbeliever. And you guys have probably experienced that to the extent that you've already been trying to minister the truth of the gospel or various points of biblical truth uh, to unbelievers. And of course, the Lord can use that ministry to change their hearts, but that's what's needed. Until that heart change, until they get the new heart, until they get the power of God, until they get the Holy Spirit, that's foolishness to them. These things are spiritually discerned. They cannot understand the truth. Seven, an unbeliever is spiritually blind and deaf. They don't have the capacity. They don't have the capacity to see these things or to hear them. Eight, an unbeliever does not see his need for a savior. And that reference in Luke 18 is to the comparison between the tax collector and the Pharisee. And what's striking there is which one has the appearance of godliness? The Pharisee. The Pharisee has the appearance of godliness. The tax collector knows he's a sinner. And he's the one who goes down to his home justified. An unbeliever does not see his need for a savior. And that can have the appearance on the outside of external righteousness. Nine, an unbeliever needs the gospel. And that's really what this is all about. This is pre-counseling. It's evangelism until that person comes to Christ. So... When they do, when they do come and they're unbelievers, what do you do? What's that? Sanctify them? Yes. By doing what? Sharing the word. word. You share the gospel with them. Yes. And and if you think back to where I started in Romans 1 
and you say to them, okay, you know, tell me what you're struggling with. Tell me what you're struggling with. And they lay out some things, you know, like comes up a lot if you're counseling young men, I'm struggling with pornography or uh, in marriages, I just can't get along with my spouse. We're headed towards divorce. Uh, I can't stop getting angry with my kids. I mean, pick your issue. It's going to be connected with many of those lists, like the one in Romans 1. You can go to any number of the other lists in Scripture that list these things out, and you can say, okay, are there parts of this list that resonate with you? Could these things describe the problems you're experiencing that are bringing you to sit down and say, can you help me? And the answer is going to be yes. And then you say, okay, can I, can I show you what God's word has to say about this? And we'll get, we'll get more into that later. But what an incredibly rich opportunity it is. And this again, you know, you may have or be thinking about having an office where people will come to you and sit down at your desk. But this is a matter also of out on the playground, around the kitchen table, at Starbucks, on the golf course, at school, at work. This is common to man. And, and you guys maybe haven't heard one of Jay Adams, and he wrote a whole pamphlet on this one, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, that there is no temptation that is overtaking you except that is common to man. No temptation or test. There's no challenge that's overtaking you except that is common to man. You're not alone. You're not the only one. In fact, every single one of us is dealing with the problems in that list. And so there's hope in that because God is faithful is the next part of 1 Corinthians 10:13 who with the temptation provides a way of escape that you may endure and that's what we have to offer. So it is a glorious thing. We have the answer going back to verse 16 of Romans 1. What is the power of God for salvation? The gospel. The righteousness that comes from Christ as a gift through faith. So we have that answer and there's a world of hurting people that come looking for the help that they need and we can give it to them. And it starts, the heart of it is the gospel. What is necessary? And 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 oftentimes, this is worth saying because I don't think it's in the notes anywhere, we often say it doesn't matter. I mean, in a sense, it does matter. But if you're sitting down in front of me, it doesn't really matter immediately whether I discern if you need justification or if you just need sanctification. The answer is the same either way. You need to repent and believe. The answer is repentance and faith. And that's, that's if you're a believer or an unbeliever. So I can, I can start even from a position of, I'm not really sure, but either way, I'm identifying areas of unbelief in your life and calling you to repentance and faith. That's, it's a simple thing. It's a simple thing. So let's see here. Uh, it is the heart. That's, that's the end of that, uh, section, letter A. B, secondly, it is the hub. And this, like I said, gets that what we talked about already has more to do with conversion. This gets more with the outworking of salvation, sanctification, a practical increase in holiness. And this corrects a misconception uh, that is more or less prevalent. I get started with the gospel and then I attack sanctification by pulling myself up by my own bootstraps. Uh, And that necessarily no one doesn't necessarily say that. But it can be the practical effect of, and this is, you know, what we call moralism. You, you don't connect. You don't make the gospel the hub of sanctification and it can turn into moralism. So that's, that's why we focus on, on the gospel not being just the heart of, uh, biblical counseling, but also the hub of it. So, uh, what we have here are four gospel realities that bear this out, showing that growth and change are the products of the gospel 
hub. And this is where I said we would come back to Romans 6 and union with Christ. That whole idea that if I'm united with Christ in his death, uh, in a death like his, I'm also united with him in his resurrection to be raised and walk in newness of life. That's where I'm empowered for it. Galatians 2, verse 20 says, uh, It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So it's that identification, again, with Christ and his death, and now living a life that's empowered and enabled by faith in order to change and grow in practical ways, this outworking uh, from the hub of the gospel. In Philippians 2, 12, and 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to work and to will for his good pleasure. So union with Christ is that outworking from the hub of the gospel into the outworking, the practical working out your salvation, uh, like it says in Philippians 2, with fear and trembling. Secondly, uh, it's the new heart. It's that opposite of what Israel lacked uh, there on the plains of Moab. You still don't have a heart to follow me and do everything I've commanded. I mean, you recognize that from the Great Commission? Go and make disciples, teaching them to obey or observe all that I've commanded. There's now a heart for it. There's now a heart for it. So that is the practical outworking, the practical, ongoing, increasing obedience. And you'll see in the progressive sanctification lecture, uh, I think Keith Palmer will probably do that one, uh, which maybe in its next next the next weekend in October. Uh, the progressive sanctification, and I, I always like this chart, it doesn't go like this. <laughs> and I, I think that's, hopefully that's encouraging to you. It doesn't always go like this, but it does trend upward. You know, you have those experiences like Paul in Romans 7. I do the things I don't want to do. I don't do the things I want to do. Who will rescue me from the body of this flesh? goes on into chapter 8 to talk about putting to death the deeds of the flesh so that you can live. Well, how are you going to put to death the deeds of the flesh when they come up? And that's going to be when you feel that downward for a moment. You, by the Spirit, walk in the Spirit and put to death the deeds of the flesh, and you're back up, and that keeps going all the way. And then the, the most glorious part is you get to, like, this point, and then it's just a, you're in heaven. <laughs> and that's what we look forward to. So, like Terry said, that's for nothing, because that's, <laughs> that's part of Keith's lecture later. So new heart, then the Holy Spirit. So you're noticing there's overlap, of course, with with what's come before. He is the agent of change, so that outworking happens when he comes to indwell you. This is that idea. If he comes to live in you, one of you is going to change, and it's not going to be him. It's going to be you. Fourthly, motivation for holy living. This is where you get your wanter fixed. Before, what did you want? You wanted to serve yourself. You wanted to serve the creation. You were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. You were like the Gentiles, like uh, Peter and Paul probably both say, at least Peter does. You get that desire changed. Now you want the things, and this is imperfect, of course, but it's a matter of direction and not perfection. You now want the things that God wants, and you want them increasingly so. And so that's, that is, it's, and, and John Piper, I think, has done, you know, several generations, a world of good by emphasizing this, you know, with his desiring God ministry. That is, it is so important that this isn't just a a set of rules to follow, but it is a God to love and to desire. 
And that is, it becomes the direction of our affections. And that becomes an important test. I mean, are there days when you can be down and, and feel like your heart is far from God and you don't desire Him and still be a believer? Absolutely. But that again is where repentance and faith comes in. You know, like Psalm 119, 59 and 60, I think it is. I considered my ways. I looked at myself and I said, I'm down. My desire isn't for God. I turned my feet to your testimonies, I hastened and did not delay to obey your commands. That's where there's joy. That's the most joyful place there is. So it becomes a motivation for holy living. You want those things now that you didn't want before. Romans 12, you want to make your body a living sacrifice. You want to be a new creature in Christ. So in other words, the gospel is central, and this is encapsulating the whole thing, and I, I kind of gave you the heads up about this to start with. The gospel is central both in conversion the heart, and in sanctification, the hub, the outworking of everything. So, let's see. Yep, that's where we get to Roman numeral two. The gospel in the practice of biblical counseling. So that was kind of laying the the, the theological framework uh, for what's coming next, which is the how does this actually go when you get into the counseling room, we, we've we've touched on that a little bit, but we'll get into uh, more detail. And and again, I want to point out this as we talk about the practical outworking and the practice of this. It I'll, I'll probably gear it more towards formal counseling, being in a counseling room. But you can think about ways this applies to all your relationships, all your interactions. It's not just going to be in a formal setting. Uh, so we'll take this in two clear steps. Uh, Oh, well, actually, it's going to be more than that. <laughs> That's a misprint. It's going to be four. But the first two are really clear, and they're kind of the key, the key ones. Number one, assess the counselee's relationship to the gospel. I think you heard this, and I forget from whom, that a profession of faith does not equal conversion. A profession of faith does not equal conversion. A profession of faith is necessary, and it's a good indicator, and love believes and hopes all things. So we take someone at their word initially, and we investigate carefully. But we do know that we have a responsibility to assess the counselees or the person you're talking to, their relationship to the gospel. So some ways you can do that, uh, what was referred to earlier as a PDI, uh, 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 personal data inventory is what that stands for. Counseling intake paperwork is uh, another way of saying that. That's what's on the slide there. You ask them all these questions, and one of the questions I think Pastor Terry referenced was, um, what have you done so far about this problem? But it takes a whole inventory. One of the most important questions on there is, how often do you read your Bible? Because if you don't have a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, a hunger and a thirst for God's Word, at least something's wrong, and it may be an indicator that you think you're a believer, but you're not. So there's there's a whole host of those uh, that you'll get into probably in later lectures. We won't go through all of those. Uh, let's see here. Brief life history. And and really, probably the, the question I use the most, and direct questions is letter D, uh, the question I probably use the most is, could you give me your testimony? Because uh, that's going to give me a pretty good idea of what they think about their standing with God. Pretty good idea of, of how they think, which is a pretty good indicator of, of where they are with God. Uh, uh, there is listed here a spiritual convictions questionnaire. Uh, and do you have the page reference in the notes? Yeah, preparing for marriage God's way, pages 41 and 42. Wayne Mack is excellent with lists. <laughs> He's almost exhaustive. If you can be exhaustive, Wayne Mack is exhaustive. 
Uh, so you'll find some helpful uh, questions on that questionnaire. And direct questions. And, and I think someone referenced evangelism explosion earlier. This is the question I use the most if I want to get right to the point. If you were to die today and stand before God and he were to ask you why he should let you into heaven, what would you say? Would you have an answer? And And you will almost invariably get a works righteousness answer, which then you have to tease out a little bit. In fact, I have a recent post on the cbcd.org on, what did I call it, uh, is your counselee a believer? And I explain how to use that question in that post. Is your counselee a believer on the cbcd.org? And that is, it's a very helpful question. We use that one a lot in uh, membership interviews because we always explain our membership interviews saying, you know, the only thing we're convinced the Lord wants in a church member is that they're a believer. That's the number one prerequisite. So how do we discern that? Well, that's one of the tools that we find useful in that. Uh, we can discern this also through homework. We give them homework that requires some spiritual discernment. These things are spiritually appraised. And if there is no spiritual understanding, that can be uh, an indicator of where things are. Or you could have misjudged and thought this person is probably not a believer. They come back with all these spiritual insights and they're growing and changing in the week and you may have realized they misunderstood your question or you misunderstood their answers and, and you got that one wrong. And another one in keeping with that is time. Uh, time and truth go hand in hand. Uh, is something we say a lot. It will come out eventually. You may not be able to tell immediately but uh, uh, like Pastor Terry was saying, sin doesn't happen in isolation. That's something that will grow. On the other hand, a good tree will bear good fruit. Matthew 7. Bad trees don't bear good fruit. Good trees don't bear bad fruit. And that becomes evident as time goes. All right, so that is step one. Assess the counselee's relationship to the gospel. Step two, present the gospel clearly to every counselee. Present the gospel clearly to every counselee. And I'm going to give you four C's here, four necessary characteristics of a faithful gospel presentation. First, it needs to be comprehensive. Uh, and you have there in the footnote Stuart Scott's resource, and I went and checked this afternoon. That is still a good link, and he has a free PDF and a PowerPoint uh, you can download to help make to help you make sure it's the gospel in context. Help you make sure that you're being comprehensive. And I heard this from Ernie Baker once. The number one thing people leave off their gospel presentations is calling for a response. So I'm getting a little ahead of us, but that's that's the typical blind spot is is a failure to call for a response. Uh, now this is the duty of all believers. We should all be able and willing. It's 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 hard to get used to. But even for those who are most shy and most introverted, and I've heard story after story and seen this personally, uh, they sometimes, I know one guy, this is the case in particular, it's the last thing in the world he would have been comfortable doing, and now he's one of the most faithful evangelists I know. So you can overcome those aspects of personality. And, and part of it is realizing this is one of those areas of obedience that the Lord has given you to follow him, and it's not optional. This is something every believer needs to be able to do. Uh, so someone ran through them earlier. Uh, I have here God, man, uh, sin, and solution. Uh, and then, of course, I left off from my list there, response. It may be entailed in the solution, but be careful not to offer the solution without 
articulating the response. And I, again, I'll get to that later. I didn't include it on the list of comprehensiveness. So that's the first C is be comprehensive, include the components. Secondly, be clear. If you want the person you're talking to, and this is what you want, this is what God wants, to be cut to the heart like the Jews that Peter was talking to in Acts 2, you need to be really clear about those categories. Don't soft-pedal sin. Don't soft-pedal the necessity for a response. You, you let those things be clear. It's the second C. Thirdly, it needs to be a convicting call. It needs to be a convicting call. And this is where I had more about the, the necessity of a response. It should, be, it should be not only comprehensive and clear, it should be convicting. It should be something like, your life depends on your response to these truths. What are you going to do? And, and even just the fact, and we all know this, it's something we tend to ignore, it's something Solomon points to in Ecclesiastes, it's better to be in the house of mourning than the house of mirth, because this is the end of every man. We put death at arm's length, we tend to try to ignore that it's a reality, but we all know it's a reality. So even that can, can, can add to the convicting nature of the call, just saying, you know that there is going to be a day when your body stops breathing. What happens in the next moment? Have you thought about that? And, and your answer to that question and, and your response to the truth I'm sharing with you has everything to do with that next moment after that last breath. Fourth, clarify the components. We need to be clear about the components of the gospel and what they accomplish. Uh, and I have here, and this is where I'm definitely going to give Keith Palmer credit because this must have taken him a while to put these slides together. Uh, he has the four, and how did we put this? Let's see here. Uh, your four main problems. Your four main problems that the gospel gives the solution to. Your four main problems that the gospel gives the solution to. And so this is a way to give clarity to your gospel presentation. Uh, and you don't have to use this method. Uh, there are resources under Roman numeral three. You can use those. This is just one, and it's a helpful one, as I went through the slides and saw how Keith had put this together. So first, the problem, first problem we have is wrath. And this is the religious problem, where we see language of sacrifice, language of atonement. Wrath is God's good, righteous punishment for our disobedience, for our rejection of his good law. So, what do we have? We have God's wrath, and we have it as we, Romans 2, 5, store up for ourselves wrath, as we, not only as, as was being talked about earlier, are guilty in Adam, but we sin ourselves. We're storing up wrath for the day of wrath. And what starts to happen here? It's, it's poured out. Each and every one of us will drink the full cup of God's wrath, which because God is eternal, His holiness is eternal, His wrath is eternal, and I think as Pastor Terry said, we can spend an eternity drinking that cup and never exhaust it. Each and every one of us will drink that cup of God's wrath, it says in Psalm 75, to its dregs, unless it's propitiated. What does propitiation mean? Romans 3, wrath-absorbing sacrifice, like a sponge. And who is our propitiation? Jesus. And so, yeah, that's right. It was, which one was it that said the whole gospel in one word? Substitution? Is that Terry? That was Terry. So I thought, he just did my whole lecture in one word. (laughs) 
substitution, the sponge. It's propitiated. Jesus in our place, being eternal, being God, absorbs all the wrath. And it's uh, John... Um, I can't think of... It's a, He's a Puritan. And he has... Uh, no, it's not Owen. Um, oh, it escapes me. No, not Bunyan. I'll think of it later. No, but I think I can remember the quote, close enough anyway, that he's. it's this dialogue between the Father and the Son. Someone remember that? No? Okay, as I go, maybe someone will. Uh, and and the, the, the Father is saying to the Son, Behold, here's this host of sinners who are in this spot where they're going to be subject to my wrath. And the Son says, Bring in all their debts that I may pay them, that there may be no after-reckoning. Every last bill they owe, every last drop is paid for by the Son. I still can't remember the guy's name. Okay, so that's propitiation. That's our first problem is wrath. Second problem, this is sort of the courtroom scene, the courtroom problem is guilt. We violated God's law and we are guilty. Solution? Exchange. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. He's dealt with our guilt, taken his guilt, our guilt on himself so that we could be declared righteous. And that circles back to Romans 1.17. The righteousness of God is not some standard which was Luther's misconception that he had to live up to. It was the righteousness, and this is clarified by chapter 3, that is a gift by faith in exchange for the sin of the believer. So justified is the verdict instead of guilty. Justification. Next problem that is solved, and this is the slave market problem, is bondage. Slavery to sin. We in ourselves by nature are slaves to sin. The solution, redemption. Ephesians 1, 7 and Romans 6, we are redeemed by the blood of Christ so that we are set free from slavery to sin. And, and I'm sort of flying through these where we're going to have the same problem Terry ran into. Uh, but, and I think you can probably think of ways you can tease these out as you give a gospel presentation. We were talking just before the session about addictions. This is the one I would relate most closely to addictions. Feelings of guilt relate to that courtroom scene. You can relate aspects of the issues someone is bringing to you. You need to be freed from your slavery. You need uh, to be rescued from the wrath of God, which is evident from the creation, it says in Romans 1. You're right to feel like God looks at you that way. You need to come to Christ and know he will look at you as a beloved son. You are adopted. You bring these components to bear, and not all of them are obviously in these slides. Bring these com- components to bear in a fitting way that pertains to the heart, the situation of the person who's come to you. Oh, Ephesians 1, 7, and then Romans 6. Again, freedom from slavery to sin. We become slaves to righteousness rather than slaves to sin. Uh, fourth problem, separation. Separation. And the clearest expression of this, let's see, it's Isaiah 59. Where's my number four? Separation, there it is. Okay, so, and then this is right. All the mechanics of the gospel really focus down to solving this one main problem. 
And this, you know, as you, I'll, I'll mention in a moment, you go all the way back to Genesis. We experienced, starting then, Adam and Eve, separation from God. It's why they hid from him. They were perceiving rightly. That was a reasonable response to what had happened. It took the gospel, which God proceeded to minister to them, for them to know they could come back to him. So this is our experience all the way from back there is separation from God. Isaiah 59, I lost it again, says 59 verse 2 says that our sins have made a separation between us and our God. They have hidden his face from us so that he does not hear us. Isaiah 59 verse 2. So the solution, reconciliation. Reconciliation. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 19. God was in Christ reconciling a whole world of sinners, reconciling the world to himself. And like Terry said, not reconciling himself to the world, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their transgressions against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. That becomes our responsibility. We have to go out and tell everyone, like God did to Adam and Eve in the garden, this separation can be restored. You can be reconciled. You don't have to remain alienated. So there you see all four there. A way to be clear, to clarify the components of the gospel so that you can present them clearly. Okay, so let's see here. Number three. So this is step three of four. Connect the gospel to the presentation problem. And I've said this already in a couple of ways. Like you go through a list or you you hear the list of their problems, you see a list like the one in Romans 1, and you, you connect that back with the worship disorder, what's the solution to that? The gospel. You've got to make those connections. That's what this step is about. So first, and actually, let me just say, uh, this really applies, what I'm about to talk about, to both unbelieving and believing counselees. For some of the reasons that I gave you earlier, and you'll see how this works out in the example that Keith put in here. So whatever you need to do to tweak your notes, because I think it, it makes... so. And I can just give you, it's suffering and sin in those two blanks. You'll, I think you'll see that, not in the same format on the slides. But those are common to believers and unbelievers, right? Every unbeliever sins and suffers. Every believer sins and suffers. Um, and we do say that a little bit differently for believers. Every believer is a sinner, a sufferer, and a saint. Every unbeliever is just a sinner and a sufferer. And they need to become a saint. Make sense? What I'm going to talk about, though, pertains in the example is an unbeliever, at least at first. So unbelieving counselee. And this, like I said, is a real example from Keith. So listen to his list. So this is one guy who came to Keith. Recent suicide attempt, fornication, alcoholism, had just recently lost his job, was depressed, experienced broken friendships, was in the middle of hostility with his parents, his girlfriend had gotten pregnant and was seeking an abortion, Uh, he had lost his housing, and he was addicted to drugs. One guy. One guy. So, the question, what do all these problems have in common? This is the question he presented to his counselee. What do all these problems have in common? You guys have an answer? Yeah, that's the right answer. Himself. Anything larger than that? Sin. sin. That's larger. What is sin affected? 
all of those things, the whole world. And that's, that's, I think, what Keith told the guy. You're a broken person living in a broken world. And someone in this situation, and I mean, I could use an example, you know, from my own ministry in that, plenty of situations. I've, I've never actually, this is impressive, I've never actually had one counselee with, with that many extreme things going on at once. But here's a hopeful, hopeful example you'll hear later. It turned things around for him. So, uh, and where was I going with that? Um, what was the last thing I said? <laughs> That's right. Broken person living in a broken world. Yes. And when someone comes and you say to them, you're a broken person living in a broken world, and you can even relate from your own experience. You can relate from your own experience your brokenness. You know, Matthew uh, 5 through 7, Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 in particular, the Beatitudes. Who comes to Christ that isn't brokenhearted? Nobody. Nobody. So that's going to resonate, and that is part of the glory of counseling ministry, is that people show up for counseling, oftentimes having been made in some respect, maybe not in a believing respect yet, it may be worldly sorrow, but in some respect they're probably close to brokenheartedness. And so to say you're a broken person living in a broken world isn't objectionable usually at that point. So they they acknowledge that, yes, I am. I'm a broken person living in a broken world. And what can you say at that point? Do you Can I show you, can I tell you what God's Word says and the solution that there is for a broken person living in a broken world? And you know at that point, they're all yours. They're all yours. They've come hoping that there is hope. And you can tell them, Yes. And you can diagnose it for them. You know, I don't know that they've, they've, they probably haven't heard that from someone else. You're being, because oftentimes it takes brokenheartedness on the person, part of the person talking to them. You're, I'm a broken person living in a broken world. There's hope for both of us. There's hope for both of us. So, can I show you what the Bible says about this? And here's some more graphics. Everyone is, is a sinner. Everyone is suffering. Why? And you go back, and this is where I said we go back to Genesis. How was everything created? What was God's verdict at the end of chapter 1 of Genesis? Everything is good. Your longings, your sense, even that the creation should be more satisfying than it is. Those are, are their broken longings, but they're not entirely wrong. That's where, you know, that analogy, they're off the mark. And they're off the mark so badly that they will lead you to eternal destruction. You've got to understand, it's not that God created a bad world. God created a good world. We're responsible. You take them to chapter 3. Our desires, starting with our first parents, led us to the situation we're in. But then you also see the gospel in chapter 3, which God ministers to Adam and Eve right away, promising the Messiah, promising that, that Eve would have a seed and that he would crush the head of the serpent. And then God sacrifices implicitly an animal, covers them with the skin, and they confess their sin. He leads them to confession, and that separation is restored for them. That experience is available to every person for all of history because, Romans 3, God looked forward to the propitiation of the cross. And all of those Old Testament sacrifices pictured that reality of the lamb who was slain from the foundations of the earth. So you're offering them that hope 
uh, and connecting it back with, and you're able to give them. And they might not, might not accept it right away, and I'll talk about that more in a moment. They may not accept it right away, but, but you're offering them that hope and that analysis, which is a true biblical analysis. This is the reason you're experiencing brokenness, and there is hope. There is hope. And step four, and this one is the very last step, and it all kind of ends right here, because this one never stops. This one never stops. You continue to connect the gospel to the counseling process. And this is where I said you'll see the hope in this. What happens when that guy with all those issues, he gets that information, he gets that analysis, he goes away with a gospel tract, and he comes back the next week, and he hasn't trusted Christ? What do you do? He has a list of new problems. And he says, this is everything that I've gone through this last week. And you say, can I show you, maybe from a different text, can I explain to you what God has to say about this? And here's his solution in the gospel. And say that happens for 13 weeks, which is what happened in this case. And at the end of 13 weeks, the man placed his trust in Christ and was a new creation. And so this is something, and this is something that can go way longer than 13 weeks. And especially with extended family members, that's probably where I've heard stories most often, years of ministry like this. And where there's, and Randy Patton's going to have a, that's not for you guys, but you can listen to the recording in in, um, track two about ministry to the hard-hearted. As a matter of fact, he's going to do that. If you want to come here Sunday morning, (laughs) he's going to do that in our adult Sunday school. Ministry to the hard-hearted. But that is a ministry that you are called to endure in and called to continue to offer them the hope of the gospel. They need it in the heart. And then, and you can work this both ways. You can start from those problems, show them at how it trails back along the spokes to where the hub and the heart is of the gospel. It starts with the gospel, continues with the gospel. And again, just be encouraged. And this, this is for each and every one of you, regardless of whether you're hoping to end up certified through this. And I would encourage you that process is doable. Or this is just a matter of in your home, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your friendships, neighbors, coworkers, meeting with someone at Starbucks, standing around the playground. This is the essence. This is where, again, hopefully you've seen this. It starts to get practical. And all the practical, you get to giving instruction and giving homework, it's all going to come back to this constantly. And you're going to endure in this ministry in the strength that God supplies through the gospel. So this is your nourishment and your food also. Uh, I'm not, and we haven't been, that's good. We've not been taking time to pray at the end. So, uh, who is it? Brent Osterberg is going to be in here next. Um, so take, if you would, I'm sorry, I was going to try to be five minutes back so you'd have a full break. Take ten minutes, a little bit more, and come back and hear your final session. You guys are dismissed.